I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, as today we're going to be taking a look at verses 14 through 16. Sorry, Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. So we continue on in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. You remember, of course, that uh, Philippians was one of his prison epistles. He had written this after he had received a gift from the Philippian congregation to sustain him while he was in jail. As I mentioned uh, a few times before, the Romans did not pay for the support of their prisoners. And so it was friends and relatives who had to keep them up as they were awaiting trial or awaiting sentence or going through that process. And that was something that would often take years within the Roman system. Paul had received their generous gift, and now he is writing to them. But he's not writing about his plight. He's more concentrating upon what's going on in the, con in the congregation there. And in particular, he wants to make sure that there is harmony within that congregation, that there is not a spirit of selfishness, that there isn't a spirit of pride, that they are not biting and rending one another. We had talked about how often it's the case that congregations do better in terms of the way that they deal with people outside the congregation, their mission support. There's support for people like Paul, who's in jail, for instance. But within the congregation, there's a spirit of disunity, a, a, a biting, a quarreling spirit within them. And that appears to have been the case partly within the Philippian congregation. Well, Paul loved them very much, and he wanted, as their pastor, to see them thriving and uh, fulfilling their mission, that which Christ had called them to in the midst of Philippi. So let's uh, see what he has to say to them today. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord who gave him this word in the first place. And let's ask him to bless him. The Sovereign Lord, we know that when Paul penned this letter to the congregation in Philippi, he was deeply concerned as a pastor with their spiritual needs. He wanted that congregation to thrive. He wanted to see the gospel uh, spreading in Philippi and then going out to the neighboring regions. And we know, Lord, that he would never have contemplated that uh, this letter that he was writing might someday be in the hands of people living on a continent yet to be discovered uh, and reading it in a church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. But we know it was always your intention that that would happen, that we would hear these words this evening. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take them to heart. Uh, and to be changed by them. I pray we would not sit numb merely thinking of these things objectively as though they were outside of us, maybe appreciating a general truth, but not applying it, Lord. May it be that we take these things to heart in our own lives and ask, are we really doing what you have called us to do? I pray that that is the case. Help me now to preach. I'm a weak man, Lord. I'm a sinner with feet of clay. And I can't hope to open up your word and exposit it aright unless you give me your Holy Spirit to do so. Now, as I preach, may Christ increase, may I decrease. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 16. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Well, as I said, Paul was dealing with the problems that uh, were coming up in that congregation in Philippi. And one of the great problems, obviously, that uh, occurs in the hearts of men 
and results in divisions within the church, divisions in congregations and families and so on, is the problem of pride. Now, one of the things that happens when we have too high a view of ourselves is that we complain about the things that we've been asked to do, even those things that it's clear that God wants us to do. Everything is an imposition. Everything is beneath us. I'm reminded of a time, and it was decades ago now, uh, when we had a young woman who had graduated from... uh, one of the Bible universities in South Carolina, she uh, came to us and only a few weeks in, she asked uh, that she be allowed to teach the women in the congregation. She had just arrived. Uh, She was not married at the time. And as I said, straight out of college. Uh, And I said, well, they don't really know you. Um, and uh, it would be good if you established a relationship with the women before we, we begin to discuss that. I said, why don't you start by volunteering to help out in the nursery? And she looked at me with this appalled expression. And she said, I didn't go to Bible college to change diapers. I wasn't thinking much at the time. I just responded immediately. I said, well, I didn't go to seminary to change diapers either, but I do it. Uh, And I said, and then uh, thinking, uh, and I I don't know, it it would be wonderful if you could craft your conversation with people, so it would be perfectly pastoral. Uh, But I said at the time, you know, you might find it's amazing how much more seriously they will take your ministry and how much more readily they'll listen to you if they know you're willing to clean poop off of their children. Uh, It really is the case, believe it or not. If you are willing to minister to the people in your church in a selfless way like that, they will appreciate you quite a bit more. She wasn't having any of it, though, and eventually she ended up leaving the uh, congregation. Now, uh, Paul says, though, we should be willing to do all things without complaining and disputing. The word there for complaining in the Greek is uh, this wonderful word, gongosmos. Uh, it's a, um, one of those words where they were trying to, you know, the, the sound is supposed to emulate the sound of complaining. That kind of, that kind of thing. It's murmuring, uh, complaining, expressing your displeasure. Uh, audibly perhaps and then the disputing is the uh, the kind of the thing that goes on in your head you're like oh I shouldn't be asked to do this this is ridiculous why couldn't anybody why is it always me why always us why are we the ones why is it always that you know 80% of the work is being done by the 20% and so on within the church that's the complaining and grumbling and it really can be uh, a, a church killer or schism maker within the church. It can cause grudges to develop very, very quickly. Uh, and so Paul wants it gone, not just from their church, but from the church generally. Uh, to show you the effect of gongismus, uh, in the in the church, Acts 6.1 We read, now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. The word there for complaint is kongosmos. They were grumbling against the way that the Hellenistic widows were being treated. They weren't getting as much food as the widows who were native to Palestine. And so this was gradually growing and growing and would have resulted in a division had the apostles not dealt with it by creating the office of the deacon and putting them in charge of that particular distribution. Now, we need to remember, sometimes it's hard to remember this, we need to remember that when God gives a command or we have an opportunity to serve him in whatever area, 
our service to the Lord should be without complaining or disputing. That is, our service to the Lord should be done promptly, and it should be done also, and this is the harder thing, cheerfully. And I mean cheerfully from within, not just the, oh, all right, I'll do it. And then you go and you do the task, and you say, well, I'm glad that's over with. And then you get back to what you were doing before. Because remember that even when we actually do what we are told, we can do it, can't we, in a manner that shows we are actually full of disputation, or perhaps even in open rebellion. Uh, There is a grudging compliance to a command that we can give. Uh, There's the famous story of the young boy in in a British public school he stood up to dispute with the teacher and the teacher said young man sit down and he refused said no sir he would not be told to sit down Uh, and then he was told by the teacher sit down or I will send you to the headmaster for thrashing and fearing the discipline that was to come he sat down and he looked at the teacher and he said on the outside I may be sitting down but on the inside I'm still standing up And that, honestly, is the way we may comply with commands sometimes or requests. That kind of grudging obedience, though, is in reality no obedience at all. I have seen parents gradually broken down, actually, by that kind of obedience. The only obedience they receive from their children on a regular basis whenever they are asked to do something is the realized sound and then they you know eventually they get about doing it but it is such a painful experience that after a while the parent just stops asking and just does the task themselves they give up they don't want to deal with that complaining or disputing Uh, now let me say to perhaps any children who might be here who are tempted to obey that way Everybody's like, is he looking to the right or the left here? This is, uh, let me say, look to your heart. What does that say about you? If the only way that you will ever obey is when you are commanded to do so, when you see something that needs to be done and yet you never do it, always expecting that your parents or your siblings or someone else will do it for you, and when you do do it, oh, it's such a chore. What does that say about the state of your heart? Is it a good thing? Is it a good heart that, that animates that kind of belief? I think if you look within, you'll find that that is not a good sign, especially if you're a professing Christian. It should be your desire to help those who are calling upon you. Uh, and certainly household chores. I, I mean, I, I used to say to my children, you know, <laughs> you're not exactly living in an Amish household. We don't roust you up at, you know, crack of dawn or just before crack of dawn, collecting eggs and plowing fields and putting up barns and things like that until you come in wearied and worn out in order to go to bed. <laughs> that's not what we're asking from you. I'm just asking for a few dishes once in a while. That's, that's all I'm really asking for. So think about the what the way that you obey says about your heart and where you are in your relationship, not just to the authorities above you, but in your relationship to the ultimate authority, the relationship that you have to Christ. In the church, we can see that kind of, that grudging obedience happening, not only obviously uh, when members are asked to do something they don't want to do necessarily, but also in in families within the church dynamic. For instance, uh, occasionally it'll be the case that a wife will say to her husband, you know, there's this family, family X, they are, um, they're going through a tough time. We really should have them over for dinner. 
And the husband, full of pity for himself, why is it always us? Why do we always have to host them? Oh, right, I suppose we'll do so. I mean, that's not exactly that cheerful, that, that spirit of love for the brethren that can happen. We can gradually, though, get animated with that feeling of self-pity as though we are doing too much. But remember this, when we have done all that we can, what does Christ say? He says we are but unworthy servants yet, unprofitable servants. We have added nothing. Nothing to him. We've only done what we were called to do. And that usually not even up to the, the limit that we could be doing it. All of us, myself included, we could all be doing far, far more than we are for the kingdom of Christ. And it should be the case that we are animated not by a sense of duty, not by this oh, kind of fearful respect and so on, but rather there should be love for one another. When we are helping those within the church, it should flow naturally. First Peter 4.8, you remember, this was actually one of the verses that was part of the Sunday school, First Peter 4.8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, a burning love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And then the next line is, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And once again, gongismus, without that dispute spirit that can come up. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He says, God's commands were given to be obeyed, not to be disputed. This greatly adorns our profession and shows we serve a good master whose service is freedom and whose work is its own reward. If we go about grumbling and doing our, our work in a disputing manner, that grumbling, gongismus kind of spirit, we're telling the world otherwise. We're saying we serve a harsh taskmaster. We hate to do what we're called to do. It's just always this awful labor that we're set to. And oh, don't you want to become a Christian with us? No. <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, in a group of people who are. Yeah, I, I, I can get that by going to the DMV. I, I don't need this, you know. Remember your witness is so very important in the way that you live out your life. Not just what you say, but the way that you say it and how you live as you are saying that. Remember also, brothers and sisters, as he points out here, we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's the way the world is described, crooked and perverse. And that's not just Paul's description of the world, it's Christ's description of the world. In Matthew 12, 39, he calls it an evil and adulterous generation, for instance. People who are crooked are morally warped. They are not right. The fall has set them in the wrong direction. Just as arthritis can cause your limbs to bend in crazy directions, the fall causes a perversion of man's will. Our moral desires go in the wrong directions. And as a result, they, they can't be trusted. They are uh, people who are always following something other than the will of the Lord. And when they are following the will of the Lord, it's only because they expect to get some worldly reward or there is a fear component. They are spiritually perverted and distorted. That is the, the world we live in. And as Christians, we need to remember that uh, when we're out in the midst of the world. We live in a crooked and perverse generation. That should particularly come to mind when we're considering who to marry, for instance, who to make our friends, who to enter into business dealings with. It should be the case that we are very, very careful as a result. We need to be, as Christ put it, wily as serpents, but as gentle as doves, because he sends us out as sheep into the midst of wolves. And sheep in the midst of wolves need to be very careful indeed. 
Paul says, you dwell amongst them, but you are to be very different from them because you have had a new spirit given to you. You have had your rock-hard, stony heart taken out and replaced by a heart of flesh. You've been given a new principle of love, that agape love that was being spoken of also in the Bible study today. It should be the case that you're animated by the love of Christ and you have a new will, new sets of desires, and you are desirous of being uh, a person who lives with an upright, a blameless, and a guileless character. People can trust you. People can lay their burdens on you and know that they are safe with you. You are to be in the world shining as a light. Now the light, the, the word that's used for you should be lights in the world, Paul tells us, uh, is a, uh, a Greek word. It's uh, foster. Um, it's difficult for me to pronounce correctly, but foster is close enough. Um, and the first time you see that Greek word for lights is in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek version of the Bible that Paul was most familiar with. And the first place that we see it is actually way back in Genesis 1.14. There we read this, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. That is the same word that Paul is using to describe you. Lights in the midst of the darkness. How should we think of this? Well, the Son of God is like the burning, fiery sun at the center of our solar system. And we are like the moon shining in the darkness. Now, we know that the moon, we can talk about the moon shining, or we can talk about moonshine, but that doesn't refer to the same thing, obviously. But uh, the moon's shining is not actually coming from it. It has no shine generator of its own. What is it doing? It's reflecting the light of the sun. That's what the moon does. 12% of the sun, I looked this up, uh, sun's light that hits the moon is then reflected to us. So it forms this light in the midst of the darkness. A light that's light enough that on a, a cloudless night with a, a full moon you can see but a light that's not so light that we can't sleep at night. That's the, uh, that's the wonderful way that God did it. But the more it reflects the light of the sun, the more it, it brightly shines, even in the midst of the darkness. And while it reflects the light of the S-U-N, your calling, brothers and sisters, is to reflect in the midst of the darkness the light of the S-O-N, the sun, wherever you are, to be a shining light Something that's greeted. I, uh, when the moon rises, you know, we've, we've had a few supermoons lately, and, you know, it really is breathtaking. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to see, even in this modern world, to see the glories of God in the firmament, that great light there before us. You should be like that in the lives of so many people. Even if they don't understand why, they should welcome you walking into their midst. And they should be sad when you walk away. Or when you move out of the area, it should be a case that, you know, they, they lament your passing. There are so many families who have passed through this church. I've been so blessed. I, I love, in one sense, that the military brings people, the army gives. But I lament the fact that the army takes away. I'm not going to say blessed be the name of the army, but moving on. It's a, it's a wonderful process to have these new families come in. And they're all, uh, you know, a delight in their own sense. 
But with some of them, they are such light within the congregation that when they go, you feel such a sadness when they're they are leaving. And having that process repeat again and again and again is, is sometimes hard, but it should be the case that we are that great light in the midst of the darkness that people welcome. You are supposed to shine like the moon, the moon dispelling physical darkness. So believers, brothers and sisters, you should banish spiritual and moral darkness wherever you go. One of the things that will sometimes happen when a Christian walks into the room is that a dirty joke or a filthy story or some sort of awful conversation like that suddenly comes to an abrupt end. You know what? That's not a bad thing. All right? It really is not. You, what have you done? You've actually banished darkness. It's like flipping on the kitchen light and the cockroaches go, whoosh, you know, heading for the darkness themselves. I'm not saying that's our kitchen, incidentally. I don't want you to think that. But that, I, I have lived places like that, trust me. But your calling is to shed light wherever you go, not to shed darkness. Now, this points to a profound truth. Believers, you live in a world where you are unfortunately intermingled with the wicked. In this portion of your existence, in this time of probation, living in a fallen world, we are going to live amongst fallen people. We're going to live in the same world they live in. We're going to breathe the same air they breathe in. We're going to go to the same places they go to. Not all of them, obviously, but we're going to go to the supermarket with them. We're going to see them in schools. We're going to see them at work and so on. And that can be really difficult. And I have to admit, in my heart of hearts, I sometimes wish I could join some sort of reformed Amish colony and just leave the world behind. No longer have to do that and dwell exclusively among like-minded brethren all the time. But that is not my calling. It really isn't. And know this, every attempt at monasticism or creating some sort of society like that ultimately fails. You know why? Because you end up taking sin with you into the midst of that particular uh, place. But that's not our calling, brothers and sisters, to separate ourselves, to take ourselves out of the world. The church, we should think of the church as a fishing vessel. And where is a fishing vessel supposed to be? In the ocean, right? That's where the fish are. Is a fishing vessel on land much use? Cast the nets over the side, boys! <laughs> you know, <laughs> We've got a toad, Captain, and... Uh, uh, some leaves in a boot. You know, that's not, there's nothing profitable that's going to come from that. Where's the, the, the ship of the, state, uh, the church supposed to be? We're supposed to be in the midst of the sea. It's not a problem when the church is in the sea of the world. That's where the fish live. The problem is when the sea gets into the ship and the ship begins to sink when the world gets into the church. Paul outlines this problem in his letter to the Corinthians. Now understand that the Corinthian church was living in a notoriously wicked city amongst wicked people. It's like writing to the churches in Vegas today. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, you may want to actually turn to 1 Corinthians so you can see what he wrote. He said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world over the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world to establish that kind of, you know, the Amish colony thing. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside? 
God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Our calling, therefore, is not to get the church out of the world, but to keep worldliness out of the church. That's our calling. So we can shine as lights. If we are exactly like them, and I know I've, I've actually met with pastors who are striving desperately to be exactly like the world. And then you have to ask, what's the difference then? All we're doing is a second-rate impersonation. I go to services and I'm like, this is like Branson, only worse. For those of you who have been to Branson or Pigeon Forge or something like that. Or the, you remember the awful Dolly Parton Wild West show or, you know, that kind of thing. So many churches are actually, that's, that's their modus operandi and they throw a little Jesus in and expect that that's going to be a world-changing event. It isn't. Brothers and sisters, it's just worldliness given to worldly people. Um, that's not supposed to be the case. Calvin puts it this way. He says, so much the more does Paul stir up the Philippians to guard carefully against all corruptions. The meaning, therefore, is this. You are, it is true, enclosed in the midst of the wicked, but in the meantime, bear in mind that you are, by God's adoption, separated from them. Let there be, therefore, in your manner of life, conspicuous marks by which you may be distinguished. Nay more, this consideration ought to stir you up the more to aim at a pious and holy life that we may not also be a part of the crooked generation entangled by their vices and contagion. You're supposed to be different. You are supposed to have that, that, that weird light to you. You are a peculiar people in more than one sense. You are set apart from the world, different from them. And in the meantime, we, we are called upon to hold fast to the world while sharing its light with others as God-bearers. We must preach and practice. You and I are to be out in the world constantly proclaiming our master, our maker, our redeemer to a world that's lost in sin. Having a candle in the midst of the light isn't much use, but a candle in the darkness is an amazing thing. So what do we do? We hold forth the word of life. We hold forth the gospel of salvation, the word that we have held fast and kept. We then share with the world. We give it to other people. It is to be preached by us, but it's also to be practiced by us. We're supposed to live holy lives. We're supposed to live different lives. Now, I know you're not going to live sinless and perfect lives. I speak to you as a sinful man speaking to sinful men. I know that. But there should be a difference. It should be the case that there's a repentant spirit within us. That when we either realize we are sinning, or somebody brings to our attention, and it should be not the case that we immediately attack people who bring to our attention that we're sinning if we are. It should be the case that we take that to heart, and our desire, therefore, is to change. We struggle with sin. That's the whole point. Read Romans 7 tonight. You will see how Paul speaks of the struggle with sin that only ends when we are set free from this body of sin and death at our death. Then we enter into glory. Sin is not a problem any longer. We'll never have those desires. Here on earth, we struggle. But that's the point. We struggle. We're not under its dominion. The world is under the dominion of sin. I was talking uh, today about the, um, uh, the problem of pornography. There really are only four categories of, of men these days. There are men who have struggled with pornography and have gotten uh, the mastery over it. There are men who are still struggling with pornography and have not yet gotten mastery over that particular sin in their lives with Christ's help. Then there are men who are not struggling at all because they are mastered by it. And then there are men who are too old to really pay any attention any longer. 
that's the four categories, really. Now, there might be men out there who have never you know, encountered it and so on. They've lived on the Amish farm for their entire life, but we are so utterly absorbed by it that it, it, it comes in uh, from every side. And so what do we do? We struggle against that. That's supposed to be our calling, to struggle. And if we are struggling, then that is a good sign. That is a sign that there's life in the midst there. So we struggle against sins. That's just one example of many sins. I could point to to the other sins out there, but we don't have time to discuss all of them. The gospel then is called the word of life by Paul because it, it, it shows us the way to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Life and immortality through the light of the gospel that we're to be sharing with the whole world. We're supposed to be going out into the darkness, bringing others into the light. We are supposed to be that ship bringing people into the ship, into the heavens. And remember this. The world, although they may despise Christians, they desperately need you. One of the things that I would tell you, brothers and sisters, is often there's this, uh, we'll, read by thing, uh, we'll read things like, you know, the, the persecuted church section. Uh, we read uh, about, um, uh, about the Finnish politician, uh, her name, Pavi uh, Razanen, who is being unjustly persecuted merely for stating what the Bible says in Romans about sexual sin. That's all she did. She just tweeted about that, and it was considered hate speech. Now, our response to that may be to hate them back. But you really shouldn't. I know this is hard, but you should not hate them. You should pity them. And I, I speak that as a, as a reformed worldling myself, someone who lived in the midst of that. I mean, think about this. We live in a world that is so far removed from a biblical worldview that they really have forgotten how to do everything. They can't do anything right. They can't do marriage. They can't do child rearing. They can't do commerce. They can't do society. They don't know how to deal with crime any longer. Their children think they're chickens and dogs and cats and girls and boys when they're not. And so on. They, they literally are utterly confused about everything. They live in a terrifying world. They have no hope for what's to come. They cling to things like crystals and, and ridiculous mantras and, and so on. They live alone in the universe, enemies, and orphans, and they hate each other. And it is awful. You shouldn't hate people like that. You should pity them. If somebody came into your, your presence and they, they were honestly deluded enough to think that they were a dog, why would you hate them? You pity somebody who's under that kind of delusion. We live amongst a, a people who are deluded about their very nature and deluded about how to be saved and how to live and so on. You have the answers, not because you're better than them or smarter than them or more inherently righteous than them, but because God has given you so much grace. He's opened his word to show you these things. So share what you have. Share the light that you've been given. Paul tells the Philippians that if they do that, if they live that kind of life, if they're sharing the gospel, that will give him the greatest joy possible. He doesn't say, you know what would give me the greatest joy to be released from the stinking Roman dungeon so that I come and visit you again. No, he says the thing that would give him the greatest joy is to hear that they have been steadfast in their faith, 
that they are holding to the things that he taught them, and they are being useful in the world. They're taking the light that they've been given by Christ, and they are sharing it far and wide. He then says that all of his labors in their midst as a pastor would be well repaid. He would know at that point that he hadn't run in vain. And the idea there is the idea of a, you know, an athletic contest where he had agonized to, to get to the finish line. He would know that he had done it. He'd gotten to the finish line. He'd finished his race. And he would think it's all worth it. And that's true. That's the, that is the center of ministry. Paul makes it very clear that ministry is not just, this is not a job. Ministry is a calling. It's a vocation. And it doesn't require just a little bit of your time now and then. It requires, and I didn't really understand, I've never met a minister who really understood this, entering into the ministry. Perhaps that's a good thing. People would be terrified. Um, the, the thing is, it requires all of you all the time. It really does. 100% of you has to be, you have to be willing to be poured out upon your congregation. I really do understand now why the Puritans died in their 50s especially without the aid of, of, of medicine and so on, modern medicine. doesn't surprise me, Calvin, Spurgeon, and so on, it, because it requires the putting forth of the whole man and running and laboring and agonizing with vehemence, with, with as much vigor as you have, and constancy. You have to be persevering, continuing on day by day. The devil doesn't take any breaks, and you can't either, really. Not really. So what gives a minister who's laboring like that, like, like Paul was, joy? Well, what gives him joy is when he receives that news that he has not labored in vain, that what he has shared with others has been blessed by God, that they've been growing in grace. Uh, and then he knows that they will be, when Jesus comes back, the day of Christ, as he describes it, they will be rejoicing, and he will be rejoicing with them, and their converts will all have those crowns that God will give them. I mean, they will cast their crowns at his feet, absolutely, but that will be his crown of rejoicing, the crown of seeing that God has blessed his labors in the midst of this people to their change, to their eternal change, to their eternal happiness, to their eternal glory, and that those people in turn have taken the gospel that he steadfastly held on to and then delivered to them, and they've taken it and they've shared it far and wide, and as a result, other people have come to the light. So this should lead us to ask, what then is the thing that makes us rejoice? What is it that gives us the most happiness? Isn't it the idea that those whom you have labored to see come to Christ have done so? Doesn't that give you great joy? I mean, as a parent, the thing that I want most for my kids, I am, I am very proud of them when they accomplish things, when they get good grades, uh, when they get out of AIT, uh, when they, you know, they do stuff like that. That's, that's a great source of joy for me. But the greatest source of joy for any Christian parent's heart is to see their child walking with the Lord and knowing that they will see them hereafter in heaven. That no matter what happens, they're in the hands of the Lord and they don't have to worry about them. By contrast, my children could, all of them, all four of them could be CEOs of multi-million dollar or multi-billion dollar companies and the world could fawn all over them. But if they didn't know the Lord, if they didn't know him, my heart would be rent. I would be 
all the time anxious and praying. Now, I know the Lord says be anxious for nothing. It's so hard to put aside that anxiety, though, over the soul of another person who you know is, is literally hanging by the spider's thread over the fire. But we trust in the Lord. But that should be our great glory and joy. So let me just ask a simple question. Are you a light in the world? Do you bring the light of Christ? Do you like the moon reflecting his glory to other people, however you can, where you go someplace? Uh, are you known as somebody who helps without grumbling and complaining? Are you a gongusmus? This is not a guy or a girl I want to ask to help me in anything because there's just such grumbling and resistance. Or are you absorbed by the darkness? Are you the opposite of the light? Do you, do you hate the light? That's the, that's the nature of mankind. If you hate the things of Christ, if you hate coming to church, if you hate Bible studies, if you hate those things, what does it say about your soul? The sad thing is it says that your soul is yet in darkness. It really does. What did John say? John in 3.19 said this, and this is the condemnation that the light, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So all I want you to do this day is to look within and say, does this light live within me? Am I reflecting the light of Christ in the midst of the world? Or do I prefer the darkness? Because that's ultimately the great question. If we prefer the darkness, it means our deeds are evil and we're yet part of the world and we're headed for destruction. We need the light. We need it desperately. And so I would urge you, don't, don't remain in the darguess. Flee into the light. You know, the awful poltergeist. Run into the light. Well, yeah, run into the light. The light of Jesus Christ. Run to him. Cast yourself upon him. And know that you will receive a salvation that can never be taken away and a light that will shine for eternity. In Daniel 12, one of the most beautiful things that's said about the saints is that they will shine like stars forever. I hope that you will be shining forever. God, our Father, we do thank you for the wonderful news of the gospel. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would put within us that desire to radiate your light to others. May it be the case that we look for opportunities to serve you and to serve you without grumbling. May it be a joy to us when we see others walking with you, Lord, growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we look forward to that day when there will be no more darkness, no more shadow, when the Lamb and the Father will be the light of heaven. And Lord, we long to see that day. Oh, may it come quickly. And we pray this.